Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. I'm Tristan Johnson, your host here today, and I am being co-hosted by the wonderful Tanya Nagpal. Hello. Oh, very excited to do this podcast today. Yes. And a uh, rare treat for us today. We do not get very often uh, people coming from the Department of Linguistics, but we have Christy Townsend here to talk with us today. How Hello. are you? I'm good. Thank you. So you come to us at a very, uh, very poignant topic, a very serious topic, but also one that's really big in the news right now. So it would be great. You, you study uh, discourses on mental health, specifically around uh, Canadian ab- Aboriginal First Nations communities. Did I get that about right? Yes, 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 you have. Mm-hmm. So I guess like just to start, like, oh, what, uh, what kind of questions are you, are you asking? What, what, uh, what's drawing you? What's, what's your work about? So my work is looking at um, how youth these days, well, oh, it's so actually very complicated because mental health is such a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary um, focus. There's health professionals, social workers, sociologists, and they all have these competing discourses. And unfortunately, the main view of mental health that has un- kept going and going has been biological determinism, or you call that the deficit-based discourse of mental health. And my focus is to shift the discourse to strength-based, resilience-based discourse. And we can apply concepts of linguistics to unify the discourse and um, hopefully then shift and promote strength-based views of, of mental health. So in some ways, you're, uh, you're really breaking down like um, the mechanisms of consciousness raising, changing language, like those kinds of things. All right, excellent. So. Uh, let's let's break down some of these concepts. Okay. Uh, uh, so the first you talked about the biomedical model of mental health. Yes. Can you give us the um, the ten cent answer as to like what that what that means? Okay. So biomedical is you have an illness. It's innate and it's essential. Like it's it's within yourself. It's biological. So it's determined by your, your genes or, or whatever. So you can't really be fixed. So that's why way in the past, um, people have been segregated from society, put into psych- psychiatric hospitals and just thought, you know, put them away, they can't get any better. But then it's changed over the years um, with with drugs and, and different viewpoints. It's, it's changed, but people are still stigmatized. And the greatest, um, one of the greatest, what they say, barriers to treatment has been um, mental, like illness stigma. And a lot of people, it's, it's, it's three different kinds. You have, uh, of course, self-stigma, you have social stigma, and you have structural stigma. All right, so... You're proposing uh, to make some like di- um, some linguistic changes, so some di- changing the dialogue in order to uh, have us. Get- what kind of things are you uh, proposing then out of that? Well, changes in dialogue. Um, definitely understanding what stigma is, because stigma 
it's another way in linguistic terms they call it marketness. So uh, people throughout history have been stigmatized. It's called discrimination, uh, segregated, and um, then also in linguistic terms as well. There's the view of what hegemony is and the power and markedness is kind of like a power process of um, how people that are in the position of power and authority will have an other and that other will be the subordinate and um, that's been shown throughout history as you know um, African Americans have been discriminated against, uh, people with disability, and and yet the, um, also interestingly, um, there was a really good study uh, HIV. Those with HIV, if you change the language and you change the campaign, then they're not stigmatized anymore. They're not discriminated, and there's more of an understanding of um, the fact that with treatment and everything. Mm-hmm. There's there's more of an acceptance and inclusion. I think people sometimes forget the power of language and how it can break down barriers of stigma associated with many of the things that you mentioned, um, including mental health. So in terms of what you do, so what's the methodology that you're using to kind of get to the answers of your questions? Yes. So my methodology includes participatory action research. More, it's it's like a transformative paradigm. So rather than go to a community and just be the researcher and tell them, like, this is what I want you to do, I will engage with the community. So first thing is part of the focus group and study, I have to talk to the community and ask them, what questions are would you like? Uh, what population are you interested in and, and everything. So that, that was my first step that I, I had to do. Um, but of course, there are barriers to methodology as with the ethics board. <laughs> but um, I, I did talk to the chief and council and uh, we did negotiate. And in fact, they want to expand the study to include youth as young as 12 and and older, Mm -hmm. which I thought, you know, ethically, the ethics board wants 18 years and older. (laughs) But the community says it's really important to include the youth, the voice of the youth, now, presently. So, Mm -hmm. yes. Especially because demographically, the Native population is very young. Uh, especially, like, are, are, you, are you locating this in a specific, uh, to a specific community or a specific province or anything like that? Yes, I, I am. Ontario or? No, it's actually uh, going to be in Alberta. Because oh, okay. Right there. Um, the other thing about going to the community, I taught there before, so they know me. Mm-hmm. And I would not want to go into a community and just be seen as researcher. Mm-hmm. I, they want... It's it's about building trust first. And Alberta, the population is very young. Uh, yes. So there's also there's obviously a stigma um, because of high rates of depression, high rates of mental uh, health. Like right now, we're in the presence of a mental health crisis, as we would say. That's right. Uh, with Indigenous communities, especially those um, living in the uh, above the Arctic Circle. Uh, so what uh, what kind of 
what is the uh, the language that we use around uh, when we discuss like uh, teen suicides, things like that in indigenous communities that um, is making us kind of otherize these communities at the same time? That's a really good, uh, I liked your use of otherize. Um, there's Goffman, in, way back in the 1960s, he's the one that uh, actually brought up stigma and, and talked about, defined it. And then the other, um, actually a really good researcher here that is my second reader and now helping me is Gerald McKinley. And he is working in the North Ontario doing a lot of research and, and, and suicide prevention for um, First Nations youth. And it's like double othering. So you're not only stigmatized as having mental illness, but you're stigmatized as being First Nations. And unfortunately, because of residential schools and because of all that and losing your language, language is part of your identity. And that's that's another linguistic concept is that um, you're uh, the other. Okay, so you... Your language helps shape you. <laughs> it's your your identity is not just a, a essential or innate. You are social, and your interactions with others help you with your identity. And if other people are um, stigmatizing you, then unfortunately you will also stigmatize yourself. And there's uh, Livingston, a really good researcher on mental health and, and stigma, he w- says that stigma can be become your master status. And, and then you, it's that self-stigma again. And unfortunately, a lot of youth will, um, will feel stigmatized as First Nations, being isolated, being not part of the whole Canadian community mm-hmm. um, and because of the reconciliation and everything there's an awareness of okay yeah we are being seen as different and so these things could be like say when you have to boil your water or when food like a head of lettuce costs $30 that's like almost you can just see it every day that even if even if you're living on like a reserve where you know it's it's all your own people that you can still see through those like things that it's almost like an aggressive act from far away. Am I am I getting that about um, maybe <laughs> sort of? Well, I'll let you answer. You the expert. <laughs> um, well, so my my whole understanding when it comes to res- like I don't want my study to be solely on. The deficits. Mm-hmm. I want to look at what are the strengths. What are the strengths of the community? How can we shift the discourse and say, "Here's a really good community." They, they're, they're, because when I taught there, the community had so many strengths, and unfortunately, you have outsiders looking in and saying, "Oh well," and and they, they perpetuate the stereotypes, and so there needs to be an empowering. Uh, strength-based framework for mental health. And sometimes I don't even want to use mental health. I just want to call it resilience. Mm-hmm. What, what, how do we build resilience in communities? And, and forget about the deficits of, of um, 
mental illness. Could you maybe share some of the positive um, aspects of the community that you've seen in Alberta, um, just to give us kind of an idea of what you mean by um, some things that are working and things that should be happening everywhere? Right. Thank you. That's a great question. I I believe that a lot of youth, um, there's the power of di- of language, right? And we know, we've got to tap into that. And a lot of the research in um, looking at resilience in First Nations communities talk about the power of narrative, the power of, of sharing their stories. So you have um, a photo voice is what Gerald McKinley does. Mm-hmm. Um, goes to the community, brings in uh, cameras, and asks youth to take pictures of uh, places and spaces that are safe. Mm-hmm. And then th- the uh, youth will take the pictures, have them develop, and, and then they can share why these spaces are so po- positive to That's them. Amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then they will share them with the community, and it's more empowering, and then they see what works in the community mm-hmm. and so when I when it, where I taught there there's a community center um, and that was really positive and a, and a lot of activities were done at the community center and the school was very positive with dramas and and art and everything like that mm-hmm. so I think building on on the strengths and understanding the the needs of the community and the needs of the youth and in having more community programs that build on um, just understanding youth. The, the big crisis is in, for youth is that they're at the stage of identity formation. So if right. you have them with this master status of like mental illness stigma, then they don't really de- develop their identity very well. So if you do a lot of things that have them um, express themselves and creatively and, and understand who they are more, Mm-hmm. and the purpose and building community having more so the the other thing I'm, I'm really passionate about is peer support and that's because of all the research I've done in how to reduce stigma the the greatest thing is in co- it's contact based and so those with lived experience who have been through mental health like mm-hmm. illness and have gone through and consumer survivors they call them quote unquote um, they can share their stories and and break the stigma because you see them more as people mm-hmm. you see their strengths you see them that they can overcome obstacles and 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 succeed so peers peer support for youth is so effective mm-hmm. they can they can relate to one another they see themselves they have their own social network right and, and that, that's actually trying making me think about and when you started you were talking about structural stigma yeah and a lot of that um, I can see that you know um, being told to go to see a physician uh, to discuss anything related to mental health or the hospital environment I, right. I don't think is um, welcoming for mental health um, so with the peer-to-peer, I can see being able to talk so- to someone who you can resonate with is a lot more powerful than maybe the top-down approach you'll exactly. receive from a physician. Um, so in schools, though, I'm just thinking about, because 12-year-olds, that's quite young, and you're right, that's when you're developing your identity, and it goes beyond that. 12 to 18, I think you're still sort of, maybe even after that. Um, but in terms of, do you think right now the way we're taught... Um, 
just language that's given to us on how we should deal with mental health. It's, it's, should it be more on the positive spin then? So it's not about, you know, if you're feeling this way, you need to go see the doctor. Should it be more empowerment, more resilience related language? And if so, how, how do you see that happening? Right. I, I totally see your point and I agree as it, I'm also, I am a teacher, mm-hmm. a professional teacher back in grad school because I do see the need to look beyond the school. Uh, Youth need to see the purpose in school. They need to um, understand what skills or or ways to cope in society. Resilience is about coping and uh, and overcoming adversity. So I see mental illness as not biologically determined whatsoever. You have the biopsychosocial mm-hmm. understanding. It can be biological, also social and psychological. And a lot of youth, they do avoid uh, going to seek treatment because they don't want to be told that they have this illness. They don't want to have the label of, you know, d- depressed or this or that. So they avoid it. And um, at school, you're right, a lot of the, the ways that they talk about um, mental health, it's more prevention of the illness, or if this, then do this. Right. There's no empowerment of, um, well, let's think, if we're experiencing these feelings, how are we going to um, help one another? Or mm-hmm. think of it more as a social, not just an individual, uh, issue, but see it as a social issue. Right. So if you're f- experiencing this, what's happening at home or what's happening in the community? Like, we, we can't just see it as an individual trait anymore. We have to see it as more, you, you talk also about the crisis in many communities. Well, look at it as a community, as a social issue. Mm-hmm. If anything, because uh, like right now, maybe this is going to come out probably about a month from now, but if it's still in the news, uh, there's a there's a serious issue going on in Ottawa, where about I think 100 youths have either attempted or committed suicide in, like, yes. since 2016, 2016. Yes. Which, uh, I mean, completely breaks any idea of like trying to individualize it and like medicalize it. And it shows like that that's a sign that this is a community that needs help and a community that needs uh, resilience uh, of some kind. And so it, it, it really, um, it, it could be a learning experience. We could use it this way, right? Uh. Well, uh, definitely I see um, raising awareness. I, it was, it's really unfortunate that it, it had to come to this level to have the issue raised and become more national and international. I mean, over the past number of years, um, First Nations suicide has been four to six times higher than the, the average mm-hmm. um, in Canada. And, and it is like mental illness is considered the number one like disease internationally around the world. So um, that's something we have to, to look at even in Canada and internationally. Um, and, and in fact, uh, WHO had a meeting about it a couple weeks ago looking at it and thinking well what are ways that we as as a world can can uh, improve the treatments because it really does cut down on all the productivity losses and they see it as well now as an economic issue but uh, going back to Attawapiskat yes suicide is not an individual issue okay suicide again 
is a social issue and to see people imitate and and the the rate increases because you see your friend has died by suicide and then an, a family member has died it increases the chances that another friend or family member will also take their life and um, we we do have to just expand our view and understanding of what suicide is and hopefully then with a, a resilience framework we can um, look at it in more positive ways and, and, and think of better treatment options for it, not just prevention after the fact when it reaches mm-hmm. crisis levels. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I really, I really appreciate the resilience approach that you're choosing to take rather than the negative approach and not the top-down approach either. Yes, thank um, you. I, I really, my, um, there's a leading there's leading experts in Canada. They have the Resilience Research Center at Dalhousie University. So anyone interested in looking at resilience and looking at the social ecological view of resilience should go to uh, look up Michael Unger. Awesome. He's amazing. And before we sort of come to the end, I really wanted to bring up an uh, initiative that Christy uh, really founded here at Western, which is amazing. Uh, It's called the Graduate Peer Support. Uh, So this is an initiative that came out of the SOGS Equity Committee, which Christy is a part of, and she's been working on um, through her two years here at Western. Um, So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what GPS is, how can students utilize this resource that's now available on campus? Well, I believe uh, GPS is grad peer support. It helps us navigate our way through graduate school well done. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we we do meet from 10 30 to 12 30 at the wellness education center uh, every wednesday and uh, this initiative has been more than a year in the works i'm really happy that there's soft launch happened um on may 4th right yeah, last week last week and it's continuing throughout the summer and we'll have the like official launch in september and um, it really needs to really, I'm really glad that we have the support from the, we got the top down support mm-hmm. and there's going to be sustainability because it is a committee now at SOGS and anyone interested in joining and helping each other, we just meet, we talk, we relate with one another, we have a place and a space to, to share and to, to have that great com- like feeling of, um, support in social network. Yeah, and that's something that people, grad students especially, need in the summer times. So that's good that you started now. Yeah, I'm really happy about that. And so, if anybody wanted to look up the work you're doing or what, what kind of place, do you have any sort of internet presence that uh, someone could keep in touch and what, uh, what kind of stuff you're doing? Well, I don't yet have an internet presence. I, I will work on that. I'm, I'm currently working on my paper. I will finish writing it over the summer, and then I will do some way of publishing. And, and if anybody wants to touch base, base with me, you can always email me. And do you want me to give you my email if you address? If you do, if, you, right. if you're comfortable with it, sure. I'm, I'm comfortable with it. It's my uh, UWO one, so it's K-T-O-W-N-S-H at UWO.ca. All right, Christy, thank you so much for talking thank to you. us today. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.